This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. We are in the middle of winter. It's possible the worst surge is over, though. Cases, number of people in the hospital falling across the U.S., deaths slowing down, more people getting vaccinated, but we're not done yet. Variants are out there, and they pose a danger. So if there's another surge, will we all be ready? Will we apply lessons learned? Have we learned any lessons? What are you talking about? We talk a lot about vaccines, but not so much anymore about the treatments. So are there promising treatments that can help us? Even though the vaccines are out and available, a lot of people who can get the shot do not want it. We'll look into why that is. And Russia says its COVID vaccine is uh, pretty good. They even named it after famous satellites. Let's start with figuring out if we can end this pandemic once and for all even with concerning variants out there. With us is Dr. Gigi Granville, uh, an immunologist, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Doctor, what have we learned and are we doing this differently now? Yeah, I hope that we've learned something and we definitely are doing some different things. Um, so I think one of the one of the challenges over the last year was trying to make everybody do their own pandemic response. And so um, every state was on their own and every big city was on their own. And, and you know, infectious diseases don't know borders. They don't. It really requires a bigger response um, than just everybody doing it for themselves. So this, the response now is a lot more federally focused and a lot of uh, more direction coming from the federal government. And CDC is, is doing much more than they were doing uh, six months ago in recommending things to states to, to do. So hopefully we'll all be you know, singing from the same sheet of music soon. I think we're still confused here in California, though, at least with our <laughs> last reopenings, right? I mean, Twitter, the night when the governor said that we're going to get rid of the the regional stay-at-home orders, there were people asking reporters what's going on. The reporters are saying, well, I don't know. we got to get to the news conference tomorrow. And then I'm sitting there going, good luck getting into the queue for the yeah. questions so right. we can all figure out what's happening. Um, you know, before when we did this, I think everybody realized that maybe we were pulling plugs too soon because you have to wait a certain amount of weeks, right? You play the game to see what the numbers do. Now right. we're based on these projections and we're just hoping that the math is going to turn out to be right. Right. Yes. Um, I mean, things are starting to look like they're starting to come down in many parts of the country. The first, some of the best numbers that we've um, that we've seen in a while. But um, you know, hopefully, the combination of vaccination, people, you know, wearing masks for real, like for real, and um, and and doing the kinds of social distancing that they should have done before, will will keep us um, in good stead. The end is really in sight for so many people. Be you know, to be able to get vaccine. And we just need to to hold out and make sure that we can give uh, that to as many people as possible. And yet, you know, I was reading this morning, doctor, uh, in uh, Perth, Australia, uh, they had after many, many weeks of having no infections, they had one, one Mm -hmm. infection. And what that led to was an almost instantaneous lockdown of the city. Uh, much more stringent than anything that has happened in any city in this country, including New York and Los Angeles. And they've done that so that they can do really good tracing, stamp it out right now. And their attitude was, in effect, yeah, we may have a few days, maybe a couple of weeks where we have this very stringent lockdown. 
But in, in exchange, we're not going to face a month or two or three of an escalating crisis. That's something we still haven't learned in this country, have we? Well, yeah. I mean, I have friends who moved to Australia and, and seeing their pictures, you know, ma- unmasked and going about their business. It's, it's depressing. <laughs> I know. Um, it's, it's, it's envy is what it is. It's depressing. It's yeah. also envy, right? <laughs> But the problem is that uh, we have so much spread in this country that, um, you know, we could not contact trace our way out of it until we get to to a much more lo- a much lower number of cases. Um, it, it would need to be um, a, a much more rare event to have COVID to put those kinds of resources onto one case. And so uh, for the time being, we're, we're just not going to be able to do that kind of uh, that kind of thing. I think, though, that um, the lockdowns and all of the, those kinds of things, we don't we could manage to you know, take more common sense precautions to be able to re- reduce cases, at least to a to a, um, a level where with vaccine, we can have contact tracing be useful again. So I I don't think we're going to see the conditions in Australia for some time, um, maybe ever, but we can certainly do much better than what we're doing. Dr. D.G. Granval, immunologist, senior scholar, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Doctor, thanks. Doctors and scientists have been all in on the vaccines, but is it at the expense of figuring out treatments? Even with vaccines, people are still going to get the virus. When they do, is there anything on the horizon that looks promising to treat them? Dr. Michael Sag, infectious disease specialist and HIV AIDS researcher, University of Alabama, Birmingham. So, doctor, where are we with treatments right now? One of the things that we really do need to focus on is treatment. Why? Because we have some now that work pretty well, but most of them are IV. So we have the remdesivir that can be given IV in the hospital. And we have one really good outpatient medicine, uh, which are monoclonal antibodies. Regeneron makes one product and Lilly makes one called bamlivimab. And we're using that to great effect here in Alabama and preventing hospitalizations, but again, it's IV. What we really need is an oral treatment, much like we use Tamiflu for influenza. We need that for COVID because as the vaccine rolls out, there's still gonna be cases and having new therapies that can treat this effectively, especially as an outpatient, will be essential in the future. One of the things that that I was reading, and and tell me if this is right or not, is that there's been a lot of difficulty all over the world to do really good studies of repurposed drugs. That is, you know, drugs that are already on the market that we know are safe but were designed for other illnesses. But through observational studies, many doctors think work uh, or could work for COVID, but it's very hard to get funding for that because all the big money— either goes to vaccine research or has been going to the development of new drugs as opposed to looking at some of the old stuff. Is, is, does that ring true? To a degree, yes. Uh, so, for example, we went through the hydroxychloroquine uh, story, and there were dollars spent on pretty well-conducted randomized trials there through the government, U.S. government, and it basically showed at best little effect and more often no effect, despite the observational studies that showed activity. Right now, really hot in the lay press and among uh, a lot of docs is the use of a drug called ivermectin. That's a drug that has been used for parasitic diseases, uh, especially uh, in Africa, and it's used for heartworm for in dogs, right? And it's also, uh, it can be used for scabies, but the, but the 
thought is that it might have antiviral effect. And a lot of the observational studies, as you suggest, uh, show that there might be activity. But yet, to date, there's not a really well-conducted, randomized study where the bias of um, the provider saying, I think you should get it and maybe we won't use it on you, uh, isn't taken out. So that's what we need. But is that because what I was suggesting before, is that because this is a drug that no one's going to make a, a ton of money on it if it turns out that you do the trials and lo and behold, this is a pretty effective drug. It's out there. It's fairly cheap. Uh, no one's going to corner the market on it. So nobody has an interest in funding it. Well, all right. So there's two ways that drugs trials get funded. One would be, as you're suggesting, by the pharma company that's developing a new drug. So that's kind of off the table here. But the federal government can run clinical trials of these types of drugs. And I think um, hopefully the NIAID up at the NIH will uh, sponsor a study like that. I think it's needed at this point, uh, and we would like to get it. I'd like to see it get started now. There may be one underway, but I'm not aware of it right now. Dr. Michael Sag, infectious disease specialist, HIV AIDS researcher, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Doctor, thanks. Coming up after this short break, would you refuse a COVID vaccine if offered right now? Lots of people would and do. Even though healthcare workers, first responders, and the elderly can get a vaccine shot right now, many just refuse, and they should be the ones who have the most confidence in this vaccine. So what's going on? Jacob Appel, Director of Ethics Education in Psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. So, Jacob, does this surprise you that people like nurses are refusing the vaccine or firefighters or, or home care workers? It doesn't surprise me, but it definitely frustrates me. Um, and I don't think this is necessarily a reflection on our frontline workers who do amazing work and risk their lives. It's a reflection on a culture that has tolerated, unfortunately, false information about vaccines for quite a long time now. And this is just a culmination of uh, what's been percolating in the media and the culture for years. But 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 here's why I may disagree with you. I, I, I think it is a reflection uh, on them because frontline workers are, for better or worse, role models, aren't they, for the rest for the rest of us. And we do look up to them and we look up to them because of the vital jobs that they do do. They save lives on a daily basis. And so when we're in the middle of this horrible pandemic and vaccines are finally available we do look to those people to give us cues as to whether or not this is something that is safe and needed for us and our families. And when they don't take it uh, and, and just refuse very publicly to do so, it does send a really bad signal. Oh, there I agree completely. But the way I view it is to walk around in their shoes for a second. If our firefighters, if our EMTs, if our frontline workers really thought vaccines worked, um, of course they would take them. I think the problem is that they're skeptical either of the risks or they're skeptical of the efficacy, even though 100 million people have now gotten doses of uh, one of the COVID vaccines and there have been no fatalities, but enough people die every 90 minutes, the equivalent of a 737 crashing. So there's a cognitive dissonance between what people are seeing and what people have been taught to believe. I guess maybe it would help if everybody had the, the personal relationship or the friendship with the doctor or the surgeon or the, the, the big mucky muck at the hospital that took their shot. And then, you know, OK, they took it. I could take mine, too. Uh, but that's not the case for everybody amongst, you know, these medical systems or police departments or or whatever it is. 
No, absolutely not. I'm like, I will tell you, I was the literally the first person online the first day uh, the vaccine became available at my hospital in New York. Um, but many people don't know first line providers, doctors who've gotten vaccinated. And many hear these horror stories, most of which are false in the news. And it pains me, but there are doctors who go around sharing false information about vaccines. Um, so I think we have an obligation to change that narrative, to persuade people, and particularly people in low-income communities, people of color, people who have a history of being mistreated by the medical profession, to bring them into the fold and show them that um, we're all in this together and that vaccines really work. Well, now let me ask you uh, about how to get people to do it, because in hospitals, at least most hospitals, they can dictate uh, to doctors and nurses that they get the vaccine, right, if they're going to be dealing with patients. Uh, Should that be what uh, fire departments, police departments do as well? Should they say to their uh, people, uh, if you want to go out there and you want to be on the streets or you want to go and and perhaps do CPR on somebody uh, when you're called, you need to be vaccinated, no ifs, ands, or buts. Is that what we need to do? That may be the end game, but I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think partly because we don't have enough vaccine to go around yet. Once there's enough vaccine to go around, then concerns for freedom go out the window. Um, in part because, and I should emphasize, the Supreme Court since 1905 has legalized the right of municipalities to mandate vaccination. Um, your freedom ends when you start spreading an infectious disease. If we were talking about drug-resistant tuberculosis, nobody would say people had the right to wander the streets without taking precautions. Why the standards are different with vaccines and COVID doesn't make very much sense to most ethicists. Do you split this off into the different sectors when you think about it? Because it does sort of seem like the nursing homes, the long-term care facilities, that's where the problem may be the worst when it comes to acceptance. I mean, the residents are getting the shots, uh, but the workers are the ones that are waiting or putting it off or just saying no. Well, I think there's a direct correlation between the amount of education one has and the amount of exposure one has to political and social power and one's trust in the medical system. So I think a lot of the workers in these facilities don't have the kind of education that doctors and nurses do and don't have the kind of exposure they have to social capital. Um, so they're very doubtful. Um, and I think having people who are in power step forward and getting vaccinated makes an enormous difference. Um, I will emphasize I think the media needs to pay more attention to all the doctors out there getting vaccinated and less attention to a handful of celebrities with 10th grade educations who aren't getting vaccinated. Well, I I mean, the the media to some degree does and doesn't, I suppose. uh, But we certainly are paying attention to the frontline workers who are not getting it, as well as some medical workers. And and that's the thing that that is also baffling, because, you know, you're talking about perhaps some of these other first responders don't have the educational background to understand fully what the vaccines can and can't do, that sort of thing. But how do you account for some healthcare workers who presumably do and still say, nope, no, nope, we don't want to take it. It's too, it's too soon. We want to see what it actually does. It is baffling. And I, I can tell you in my, my own emergency room, I've actually taken the slides from the first Pfizer vaccine and shown the graph of the impact of getting the vaccine, put it up on the wall. And every time a frontline worker comes in, I show it to them. And hopefully that sinks in. And I think we all need to start doing that. All right, Jacob Appel, bioethicist, lawyer, director of uh, ethics education in psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine. Russian scientists say the country's vaccine appears safe and effective against the virus. 
It's showing a 91% effectiveness, which rivals Moderna and Pfizer. Sputnik V is what they call it. Other scientists were critical at first. You might remember this because they rolled it out so early. But now it looks good. Dr. Lee Riley, Division Head of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. So, doctor, uh, this does look good. Is it, is it better than Johnson & Johnson's? You know, it's exciting to see the data finally come out of uh, Russia on this. Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned that this might be better than Johnson & Johnson. Well, actually, uh, uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, as you know, is uh, given as a one dose, whereas this uh, Russian Sputnik vaccine is given as two doses. And, and, and there are two actually uh, components to this vaccine. The first one, that, the first, one, first dose that they give is actually very similar to the uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine meaning that uh, they use an adenovirus, it's called adenovirus 26, to deliver the protein uh, that's made by the coronavirus. And so if you compare uh, just a single dose of the Sputnik vaccine to Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, uh, it's almost identical. The single dose of the Russian vaccine gave 73% uh, efficacy. And Johnson & Johnson vaccine here in the US was 72% effective. So they're pretty much identical. The only uh, reason uh, the Russian vaccine is is better is because they give a, a second dose. And so, um, in a way, it's really comparable to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Should we learn something from that? Is Johnson Johnson ever considered giving giving a double dose of theirs? Well, so, you know, you have to uh, kind of balance uh, advantages and disadvantages. Uh, just giving a single dose, you know, uh, is a huge, uh, uh, it might makes it much easier. People don't have to go back to get their second dose. It's easier to sort of uh, administer the vaccine. It's easier to deliver the vaccine. It's easier to produce enough vaccines to give to as many people as possible. And 72% efficacy is not that bad. And so, uh, so you have to balance that with uh, the sort of the logistics of having to give two doses. And what, what's the si what's the single uh, shot efficacy for Moderna and Pfizer? Uh, it's about fifty some percent. So if, if you you know uh, just compare the vac these vaccines back to back, uh, this Russian vaccine and Johnson uh, Johnson vaccine are slightly better. So if so, you you know to just give one dose. Okay, so so then here's the question. Uh, you know we obviously the world can use as much vaccine as possible. Uh, the U.S. of course has no inhibitions about shipping our vaccines to as many countries as want as, as wanted. Should the U.S. then be using Sputnik V, the Russian vaccine, here to add it to our arsenal, or do you think politics is going to get in the way? Uh, yes, of course, politics is always going to get in the way. But, you know, uh, by the same token, uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson vaccine is going to become available in the next month or so. And so, as I said, you know, they're very similar type of vaccine. So, you know, if we can just wait for Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I don't think we necessarily need to get the Russian vaccine here. We obviously think of America because that's where we're living. We want our vaccines here. But but when you scale it up and you look at trying to vaccine, vaccinate people globally, I mean, this is probably also where the Russian vaccine could come into play in other places. Because when you're looking at countries that may not get their doses as fast, I mean, they could be years away from, from reaching sure. the immunity before before some others, like us. Right. No, this is very important. You know, we can't just protect ourselves, obviously, with this pandemic, and you know, the whole world needs to be protected. And so more countries can make these uh, vaccines and make them available to, to uh, uh, regions where they can't make the vaccines. Yes, the better uh, uh, it will be for the world. And so, you know, perhaps the Russians uh, can make enough of these vaccines to uh, reach uh, other areas of the world.
Well, you have to give the, if nothing else, you have to give the Russians credit for the way they name their vaccines. I mean, you know, Sputnik, <laughs> sure, Sputnik like 5, that. you know, I said yeah. to Mike before in the commercial break, it could have been Borscht 1, but Sputnik, <laughs> Sputnik 5 is okay. Is there anything you've seen in the data, though, that makes you think, is there something the Russian vaccine maybe offers that none of the others do? Uh, so, they, so the, as I said, it's a two dose. And what's interesting is that when they give the second dose, they use a different strain of the adenovirus. Because if you give if you give the same strain, then the second dose uh, may not work. Because, you know, because the, the first uh, um, dose would mount an antibody against that virus that's used as a vector. And so they were clever, and then they decided to use a different type of uh, adenovirus, uh, and so that makes it more uh, effective um, and, and not get inactivated or in neutralized by the antibody from the first uh, uh, vaccine. So, so that's the sort of novelty of this vaccine, but, but the same issues, you know, come up like with the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, they have to give two doses, which, you know, is logistically a little more complicated. I guess it really worked out for them, right? Because it, it, it works, and you've mm -hmm. got high percentiles, um, but you were still playing fast and loose up front, and that could have gotten dangerous. Exactly. Yeah, no. So that was you know something that they got criticized for, but uh, luckily, no really serious events occurred as associated with the vaccine, and so uh, they got away with it. Do the Russian vac does the Russian vaccine have to be deep frozen, which, of course, in Russia in the winter isn't a problem. <laughs> just put it outside. <laughs> yeah, just, right, just put it out of the window. Uh, or is it a regular kind of vaccine? Right. They don't, it doesn't need to be in deep freezers. It's uh, just like the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It could be in a, uh, a regular, uh, you know, it has to be frozen when they're di uh, uh, distributed, but they can be stored at uh, uh, regular free, uh, refrigerator temperature. And to go back to what you were saying earlier, you're expecting Johnson & Johnson here in what time period? And then are we still also waiting on AstraZeneca? Yes. So Johnson & Johnson will probably come out first. It's under review right now at the FDA, and it'll probably take about two, three weeks. And then shortly after that, it will be approved. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's approved before end of this month. Uh, the Novavax one will take a little longer. Um, and then, there's, of course, there's the AstraZeneca one that, that should also be coming out soon. All right. Dr. Lee Riley, Division Head, Infectious Diseases, Vaccinology, UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Doctors and scientists are looking at all kinds of drugs to try to treat the virus, which we discussed in the earlier segment. Now, the ultimate answer, though, might be under the sea. An extract from a rare creature called a sea squirt showing promise in stopping COVID-19 infections. A professor at UC San Francisco says the extract comes from sea squirts, specifically off the coast of Spain in the Mediterranean. Now, the extract is used to treat a rare form of cancer. Nevin Krogan says it's about 30 times more potent than remdesivir in human cells. He also says it works in a way that stops the virus, even if it has uh, mutated. Now, what it does is that it prevents the virus from hijacking a certain protein it needs to spread. The next steps are clinical studies to find out if it works in people. But don't worry about running out of sea squirts or fishing them to extinction. The extract can also be made in a lab. You should Google sea squirts, though. Are they cute? Yeah, they're over here. They oh. look, there's all sorts of colors. Oh, that's, that's very nice. And the little tube things. But, but fortunately for those sea squirts, we can make yeah. it synthetically so we can leave them alone. Yeah. Thanks, guys. We'll, we'll see you later when we're scuba diving. Uh, you can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.